You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Alexander McCall Smith. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Word of Mouth, it's Writers on a New England Stage with Alexander McCall Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Well, best known as the author of the multi-million selling number one ladies detective agency novels, McCall Smith made his living for many years as an esteemed lawyer and medical law professor and an international authority on medical ethics and bioethics. He was born in what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and helped found a law school in neighboring Botswana. It is there that he set his first novel about Precious Ramatswe, who brought the innate curiosity and traditional wisdom honed as a child in the Kalahari Desert to bear as Botswana's first ever lady detective. Alexander McCall Smith joined us shortly after publication of The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine, the 16th novel in a series that has sold more than 20 million books worldwide. He's also written 30 children's books and dozens of volumes in other novel series, The Sunday Philosophers Club with Isabel Dalhousie, The 44 Scotland series, and The Professor Dr. Von Igelfeld Entertainments, respectively. In other words, he is almost superhumanly prolific. Alexander McCall Smith stepped onto stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth to admit to all of us that he has a problem. Um, I'm a a serial novelist. I feel I have to confess that because uh, I think you need to tell people about these things. I was in California uh, recently, and I realized there that in California, when you meet people for the first time, uh, you tell them what your problem is. And... uh, (laughs) This is, uh, this is the way the Californians uh, actually approach things. And then, and then you tell them what your problem is, and they reply and tell, tell, tell you what their, their problem is. And so, so it's, it's a form of California bonding, which is very effective. So uh, my problem is I'm a serial novelist, and uh, this is a condition which uh, has various grades of seriousness. It manifests itself in a tendency to write novel after novel, and uh, there's no known cure. You write novel after novel, uh, and then you die. And, uh, and that's, the, that's the condition that I have. It's uh, various degrees of seriousness. At one end of the spectrum, you've got people who just write one sequel. Uh, that's the innocent end of it, and then they get better, and they, and they stop writing these novels. And then at the other uh, end of the spectrum, you have people who do 20 novels in a, in a series. I uh, started writing the number one ladies detective agency uh, some years ago. It was over 12 years ago, about 12, 14 years ago. I had lived in uh, Botswana, and uh, I had thought, what a wonderful country this is. And it is a beautiful country, Botswana, with, with very fine people. And I had an, uh, a particular experience in which I met uh, a wonderful woman there uh, who just struck me as being uh, a remarkable example of African ability and fortitude and, and humor. I was staying in a, in a place called Machudi, north of the capital, Cabroni, and my hostess said, we're going down to collect a chicken that somebody wants to give us for, for lunch the next day. And so I went down to this house, and there was this house with a beautifully swept yard, and there was this woman in a red dress. I can still see her, a uh, fairly traditionally built uh, lady. And uh, there was this chicken pecking away at the, uh, in the dust. And uh, she chased the chicken around the yard. There was terrific kerfuffle, feathers, dust, etc. And then she fell upon the chicken. The odds were against the chicken at the, uh, at the beginning. And she immediately disposed of it and handed it to us. And I, I thought, what a remarkable woman. And uh, 
And I thought maybe one day I'll write about a woman in Botswana who uh, has um, a life which has some difficulties in it, but she, she does very well with things. And that idea bubbled away in my subconscious for many years. And years later, I sat down and I wrote a short story about Mara Matsui, about this woman who is uh, at her uh, father's deathbed. And he says, when I die, uh, sell the cattle and start a business. And he's thinking of a you know, a responsible business such as a hardware store, something of that sort. And she says brightly, I know I'll start a detective agency. And uh, he gasps and expires. And, uh, <clears throat> and that was the beginning. And uh, she gets hold of a book uh, called The Principles of Private Detection uh, by one Clovis Anderson. And this tells you how to run a, a private detective agency. And uh, she's, uh, she's delighted with this, and she gets an assistant, Grace Makutsi, uh, who's a wonderful woman who, in the final exams of the Botswana Secretarial College, got 97% in the final examination. And they set off, and they start this. And, and I wrote the first book, and at the end of the first book, I had Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni, that great garagiste. Um, I like the term garagiste because it's just moderately pretentious. And... Um, and uh, Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni uh, proposes to her and says, w will you marry me, Mara Matsui? And she says, of course I will, and that's the end of the book. And the publisher said, well, you know, you don't really finish books like that. That's not the way you end books. If you get characters engaged, the readers want to go and see the wedding. So write a sequel. So I wrote a sequel, uh, which was called Tears of the Giraffe, and I had intended to get them married off in Tears of the Giraffe, but I didn't quite get round to it. So... Um, so the publisher said, we'll make it a trilogy and get them married in the third volume. So I wrote a third volume called Morality for Beautiful Girls. And I had intended to get them married, but I, again, I didn't, didn't really get round to it. And so the publisher said, well, you've done it again. Make it a quartet. And this time, use a working title to remind you uh, to uh, get them married. So he said, maybe you should call it The Wedding. And... Um, and he'd pointed out that Tolstoy had done that and that he'd wanted to write about both war and peace and, and in his case, uh, it, it had worked. So I, I wrote this fourth book but didn't get them married and then eventually in volume five I got them married and then I had to fix Mama Kutsi up because, you know, we wanted her to get a husband. And so I sent her to a dance school, the Botswana Academy of Dance and Movement, Tuesday evenings in the President Hotel in Khabarone. And she goes in the first uh, evening of the class, she's late. And all those useless, feckless girls, some of whom only got 50% in the final exams of the Botswana Secretary, they're all there and they get the handsome men. And she's left with a rather unprepossessing looking man called Mr. Futi Radafuti. And uh, he has a serious movement problem. He can't dance a step. And... Um, also, unfortunately, has a serious speech impediment. She can't understand what he says. But apart from that, it's absolutely ideal. <coughs> so uh, we get Mama Kutsi fixed up with Mr. Futi Radifuti, and now, of course, she's got a baby. And you'll find the baby in the latest book, Woman Who Walked in the Sunshine. She's got this wonderful baby who's the only purring baby in Botswana. This baby, this baby purrs. If you pick the baby up, uh, it purrs, which I think is a lovely idea that there should be a purring baby. <laughs> I never thought I'd write about purring babies or talking shoes, but, but there we are.
Life has surprises for one. So uh, this latest book takes one further in the adventures of Mara Matsui and Mama Kutsi. The, the book involves Mara Matsui taking a holiday. Uh, Mama Kutsi says she should take a holiday. She's never taken a holiday before now. But I think if somebody says you should take a holiday, you really need to ask why are they suggesting that you should take a holiday? And of course, Mama Kutsi wants to be in control of the, uh, of the agency. But everything works out. Uh, very well, because everything works out well in my book, so I'm happy to say we, we don't have any. <laughs> you know, pe pe people sometimes say to me, you, you know, you should have more violence in your books, and I say, well, no, not really. That's not the sort of thing that I write about. My readers are of a very nervous disposition, and I... <laughs> They, they don't really want it. So anyway, so I've just written volume 16 of the uh, number one ladies detective agency series, The Woman Who Walked in, in the Sunshine, and I'm just about to start volume 17. And um, I, well, thank you. But um, I do need to work out what we can do with the apprentices, those two young men, Charlie and Fanwell. Somebody said to me the other day, look, just how long does it take to do a mechanical apprenticeship in Botswana? And I had to say, well, you know, about 20 to 25 volumes. And, uh, but we do need to sort them out. So any suggestions would be very, very welcome. You're listening to the ultra best-selling and utterly charming author Alexander McCall Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage. Very briefly. Uh, 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 nothing really interesting happens to me in my private life, but I do every so often, I, I like to get away. And I like to get away to write, because when I'm in, in Edinburgh, where I live, the telephone's going and there are all sorts of issues, and, and I go on tour, and, and, and there are all sorts of issues on tour as well. And so I really like to get away and write in peace. And uh, this last uh, summer, I went to Italy. And um, so I decided to go off to a lovely place called Montalcino, which is a little hill town in the Sionese Hills. I'm sure many of you will know about it. They produce a very good wine there called Brunello de Montalcino, which is the best wine that Italy produces. It's very expensive. It's very good. And then they produce a secondary wine called Rosso de Montalcino, which is grown outside the very tightly controlled zone of production of Brunello de Montalcino. Anyway... I went off to, um, uh, to Italy. I took a flight from Edinburgh to Pisa. And uh, on the plane, I met a, a very uh, friendly Italian businessman who was seated in the seat next to me. And you know how friendly the Italians are, very charming, friendly. And um, we got on very well. We said goodbye when, when the plane landed, and we went our separate ways. And I went to the car hire place in, at Pisa Airport. I was, I'd arranged to hire a car. And when I went in, they said, uh, we haven't got your booking. And I was really obviously surprised about this. And I had an email and said, well, look, here's the confirmation. I showed them the email and they said, that's invalid. And um, they said they hadn't received it at all. And I said, well, give me another car. And they said, no, all the cars are out. And this was the point which my new friend walked past and he came over and he said, what's the problem? I said, well, I arranged this car, I booked it. And here's the evidence and these people haven't got a car. He said, don't worry, I've got a friend who's got a car hire place, come with me and uh, I'll fix you up. And that's typical of the friendliness and helpfulness of the, of the Italians. And so I went off, it was about two or three miles from the airport, went to this other car hire place. They said, um, uh, we got a very good welcome from the owner of this. 
And my friend explained what uh, the situation was. And he said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. All our cars are out. Holiday weekend, we've got nothing. However, I can rent you a bulldozer. And... Um, <laughs> So I said, well, you know, I've never driven a bulldozer. I don't know. I, I don't know how you do it. And he said, uh, dead simple. There's a forward gear there. You just put it like a, then you pull it back for reverse. And absolute, there's another lever, which is a blade. Don't touch that one, but just do this. And I, and I said, but my license won't be valid. I've got a UK driving license for cars. It says nothing about bulldozers. He said, absolutely, perfectly legal, European Union rules. You've got, you can drive a car, you can drive a bulldozer, absolutely no problem. So I was in a real spot because these people were so nice and so friendly and I, I felt I couldn't say no to them. And so I signed the rental contract and he gave me full insurance, the whole, whole, whole thing was insured. And then I went out and I walked around the bulldozer just to check up for damage uh, and things like that. And uh, then off I sat and it took some time to reach Montalcino. But we went off, and the nice thing about a bulldozer is you've got a very good view because you're high up, and so you have a, a very good view of all the features of the landscape. So I arrived in Montalcino, and I booked into the hotel, Albergo Il Giglio, the Lily Hotel, lovely hotel. And they said you can park your bulldozer around the, around the back. And I was very happy there, and I spent two weeks, and I, I got a lot of work done. And I, every morning I went to a wonderful fantasy cafe in the main piazza, and had my coffee there, and I got to know the locals, and I got to know the priest who went for his coffee at the same time. We got on very well. He was very interested in 19th century Lombros and criminology, and we sort of chatted about that. And uh, it was all very, very pleasant. And then towards the end, when I was due to go back, the priest uh, said um, his brother had a wine estate nearby and was keen to invite me for lunch before I went back to Scotland. So I said, oh, well, that's, that's fine. He said, could we take the, the bulldozer? Could we go by, by bulldozer? And I said, yes. And there was a spare seat next to the, um, next to the driver's seat. So a priest got into that. And, and we had the most wonderful welcome at this wine estate. It was a bit of a run-down wine estate, but really, really nice people. And they, made, they said, oh, just a few simple Tuscan dishes. It was about six courses for lunch of Tuscan bean stew, wonderful sausages and so on. And we had a very good time. And at the end... The brother said, I'm just out of the zone of production of Brunello de Montalcino. I can only produce Rosso de Montalcino. If I were in the zone of production, I'd get a much better price for my wine. And the, as it happens, the dividing line um, runs close by, and it's a sort of earthenware dike. Uh, do you think you could? And uh, I, was, I was, was very awkward for me. I, 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 I couldn't say no. They'd been so kind, so I got on the bulldozer and I got into reverse and I w took about two and a half hours, but I moved the, the boy. <laughs> and uh, at the end, uh, we went back in. He was so pleased. They were so grateful that I, I'd done this. And we went back and we toasted one another in what was now Brunello de Montalcino. <laughs> There's a little coda before I finish. I arrived back and I handed the bulldozer over to the rental uh, chap and uh, he said, well, that's great, you know, uh, come back any time. And, and, and we also have 
uh, combine harvesters. <laughs> Alexander McCall Smith, clearly a man of many talents and author of the number one ladies detective agency and several other series of novels. He was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. When we come back, we'll talk with Alexander McCall Smith about accessing the mind of the writer, his knack for spying on people on public, and why he is unashamed to write optimistic fiction. That's after a short break when writers on a New England stage returns. I'm Virginia Prescott. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Alexander McCall Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. The author of more than 100 books, Alexander McCall Smith is best known for the number one ladies' detective agency series, which has been translated into 40 languages and turned into a TV series starring R&B singer Jill Scott as Ma Ramotswe. Every man I am meeting wants me to change something. I prefer to fix things myself. And what brings you to Kaburon? Uh, I've just sold my father's kettle, so I'm looking for a nice house in the city. And then I will find an office and start my own business. I'm going to open a detective agency. With tens of millions of books in the series sold worldwide, it is safe to say that more people know about the dusty streets and social formalities and vocal patois of Botswana from the number one ladies' detective agency than any other source. Alexander McCall Smith grew up observing similar lives and customs in what is now Zimbabwe. Today he lives in Edinburgh, Scotland, and joined us on stage wearing a handsome, traditional kilt. So, so happy that you're here. Thank you very much indeed, Virginia. Thank now, you. you were just telling us backstage about creating a writing regime. You write about a thousand words an hour, two to three books a year. As a friend of mine said earlier, does he just do this to make us feel badly? <laughs> no, certainly not. I don't do it for that. I, I think it's probably somehow connected with the, the serial novelism that I, I referred to, that uh, I feel this great desire to write, and uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy it tremendously. Uh, so from my point of view, I suppose I'm nev never happier than when I'm actually writing something. Uh, it's not uh, a, a tedious task in any sense. Uh, it is work. I wouldn't say that it isn't. It isn't work. It it, it definitely is work, in that it can be exhausting. Uh, but I I just get such pleasure f f from it. And and my difficulty is that I have have so many uh, books that I want to write, um, and my poor publishers uh, are, are really, I suppose, inundated with these books that I write. But I I, I enjoy it, and they're very tolerant, kind people, and so they publish them. <laughs> But how do you get, you know, you're writing four different series, you're writing children's mm. series, you're writing BBC radio series. Mm. How do you get in the various different kinds of head spaces you need to be in for the various different books? Well, I, I think I have different voices. Uh, so I have a different voice for each of the, 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 the series. So the Number One Ladies Detective Agency series has a certain voice. And I think there's a certain sort of prose which goes with that as well. That when the characters are speaking to one another, 
uh, they're speaking African English, which is very correct and very nice and has lovely rhythm to it. Um, so I enter into a, a, a different world each time I sit down to write, write a book. That is quite separate from the, the world of my uh, other uh, novels. Uh, so I managed to do that, and generally speaking, I managed to keep them separate. There was one occasion, though, in which I, I didn't, and my editor in New York said about the latest Mara Matsui script that he'd received, oh, page 85 or whatever, he said, Mara Matsui's beginning to talk like Isabel Dalhousie. <laughs> and, um, and I looked at it, and indeed he was, he, was, he was right. And I'd somehow slipped between fictional worlds. But generally speaking, I keep them, uh, keep them separate. As I s sit down to, to write, I'm transported to the relevant fictional world, and, and that keeps it distinct. What do you mean transported? To the, is this is an interior process, an exterior process? What's uh, going on for you? It's interesting. Uh, I, I think that what happens is that I surrender to the subconscious mind uh, where I think a lot of fiction is created uh, at that sub, uh, subconscious level. And so I just make myself available to be the scribe who will write what the subconscious mind has been, has been cooking up. Hmm. And so I don't have to sit there and think about what is going to happen. I don't have to sit there and think, he's going to do this, she's going to do that, that sort of thing. It just comes. Mm. Uh, I don't hear voices, because that sounds a little bit sinister. Um, <laughs> and I don't, we don't want to get too psychiatric in this, but, but I actually really don't have to think what's going to come next. I make myself available, and it comes. And I hear a certain sort of rhythm in my mind. I will sometimes use music. I will put a, a bit of music on. I find that helps, um, as long as it's not, the music isn't too intrusive. Some pieces of music will, will make you think too much about what the words, mm -hmm. uh, words are, which I think can get in the way of the, the process. But I, I'll play something. So for example, with Isabel Dalhousie, with the Sunday Philosophy Club or Isabel Dalhousie novels, as I sit down to write, I'll put on Mozart's Soave Seal Vento from Cosi Fantuti, that wonderful trio, and I'll play that, and I'm in Isabel's world mm -hmm. then, and the subconscious mind takes, takes over, and then I suddenly look around me, and an hour or two has passed, and I've been typing all the time. So that's, I think, just developing the brain pathways that go to the subconscious mind, which is always interrogating the world. Our subconscious mind is always looking at things. As we see things, it's classifying them. It's saying that's a table rather than a chair, that's a carpet, that sort of thing. This is all going on in the background. We're not aware of it. And I think uh, the subconscious mind is often asking what if questions, what if that happened, what if, if something else were to result. So that's, that's how it works uh, for me, and I will have sessions of two or three hours where I will do that, and then uh, there will be the result. You mentioned the inspiration that mm. somehow your subconscious took in about Ma Romotswe, you know, you yes. saw this woman. Yes. Oh, yes. And, yes. and a number of people have asked about the development of that character, um, especially uh, Jessica, who's 13, a big fan of yours, was wondering if Precious is based on someone you might know. You mentioned her, but how do you get that 
female voice. I mean, she could not be more different. She's a traditionally built African woman. Well, people often say, you know, how do you write uh, about women? How do you write with a woman's vo uh, voice? Because that's probably what I do to a great extent. You may have noticed uh, that I'm wearing a skirt. I didn't uh, <laughs> I um, couldn't help but notice. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and for the benefit of any radio listeners, it's a, it's a kilt. Uh, but I think that uh, you, you have to be prepared to put yourself into the shoes of, of other people. That's the whole point about being a novelist, is that you actually are wondering about other people whose historical experience, whose personal experience is going to be very different from your, your own. And so I find myself always very curious about that. If I go into a restaurant, which I do fairly frequently. I do a lot of touring, therefore have to go to restaurants and whatnot. And I actually am very interested in the other people present. What's their story? Where are they from? What are they? And I try to work out what they, their, their backstory might, might, might be. Um, and uh, sometimes one gets it right, and other, other, other times you, you don't. This morning, here in New Hampshire, uh, having breakfast in the hotel, I noticed there was a couple at a table uh, not very far from mine, and I was I was discreetly looking at them and thinking, mm, who are they? And um, trying to work out what their, their story was. It transpired they were looking at me uh, because... <laughs> was it the kilt? Well, no, I wasn't. I was wearing, I was wearing uh, um, civilian clothing. And... Uh, and then this lady got up, very charming lady got up and said, and she came over to the table and said, has anybody ever said to you that you look like that man who writes those books? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it, was, it was wonderful. And uh, so we'd both, been, we'd both been looking at one another and wondering what the other, who the other was. And... Uh, she was uh, delighted to find out that I was indeed the, the self-same man, but there we are. <laughs> now are you going to develop a new series about them? I oh, mean, well is somebody known. sitting in a restaurant, the chances are good that a serial novelist might take their story. Well, you've got to be careful. I've probably got enough series. I, I'm inventing a new one, which I'm starting next year. I've, I've got about five or six series. I, you know, I don't need any more series. <laughs> but Jenna, please, that's it. Don't, don't egg me on. <laughs> but you do also, you have this worldwide audience that is awaiting the next mm. book, so excited about it. Does that feel to you like pressure or freedom or a little of both? It's probably a, a bit of both in the sense that uh, when the books really took off and I discovered, thankfully, this very large audience, which I'm very grateful, I realized that uh, I had uh, no longer the ownership of the characters. Mm -hmm. And that's quite a, an interesting thing in that uh, Mara Motswe, Mama Kutsi, Isabel Dalhousie, Bertie, all these characters in my books don't actually really belong to me. I don't regard myself as being the owner of those characters. Uh, I regard myself as being the custodian in a sense. And so I will never do anything with those characters which would um, completely distress the readership. Uh, people really develop a very strong relationship with fictional characters. Mm -hmm. uh, I think many people would be surprised to discover how strong that relationship is. They feel that the fictional characters are their friends. And I can understand that. And, and so I, I'm the custodian 
of those, and I wouldn't really do anything, anything dramatic uh, with them. I realize, of course, I can control the way things go, but uh, I'm certainly going to be very careful about, uh, about that. Because I, I realize that, that people get very upset if unpleasant things happen to fictional characters they like. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Alexander McCall Smith, author of The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine. It's the latest in the number one ladies' detective agency series. He's also author of dozens of other novels and children's books. The interview was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. There is a child in the book that Mara Matsue comes upon, and in the way that she does often reflects on how things used to be in the village compared yeah. to how they are yeah. in the modern urban setting. And, you know, she thinks about how much independence children had in the village yes. because there were people surrounding them, and now people have to be protective. Well, yes, I think she's there expressing a concern which many of us would feel about our own societies and our own circumstances, in that many of us were, uh, were greatly privileged to have uh, a free and easy childhood, where you could go off and you could ride your bicycle or you could go off without into, a the, helmet. into the woods without a helmet. Yes, or without brakes. Mm-hmm. I mean... <laughs> I, I, I had a bicycle without brakes, and I mean, I'm still here. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's something which was, which was great. And when, I, th- I think, uh, all of us who are of a certain certain vintage, reflect on our childhood, we realize we actually did have freedom. Uh, and it was wonderful, and you weren't kept indoors. You could go out and you, 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 you went and you wandered, wandered about. Now, of course, uh, obviously life has changed, and life is much more urban and much more restricted. And, and, and I think that we've uh, obvi- obviously developed c- uh, concerns ab- about uh, risk to children and things like that. But at the same time, you know, we can't wrap ourselves in cotton wool. There are a lot of people out there who want to wrap everybody in cotton wool. I mean, I'll give you an example. In the UK, we had uh, an issue with pantomime shows in the theatre. They used to throw candies out to the audience. You know, which is a great thing to do. I mean, I don't know whether you do. Do you? Do I do it all show? the time, especially if things show. aren't going well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but that was stopped on grounds of health and safety yeah. that people could be hit on the head by. Oh, uh, I thought it might be candy or sweet. sugar or peanut oh, allergies or something, well, which then, are serious things. Then, the, then, then there, is, of course, is the. Yes, I mean, you don't want to throw peanuts at people, but but I don't know. We we used to throw peanuts at people <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think there has to be a limit to the the extent to which we stop people doing things. Well, I want to pick up on this sort of changing Botswana idea because there's a bit in the book, it's a, just a beautiful part of the book where she's sort of reflecting on when the land was quiet and dreamy, when nothing much of note happened, a time when nobody knew of the diamonds beneath the soil and cattle were all that mattered. Mm. So... Did diamonds transform Botswana? Well, they made a very big difference. Botswana was a a little bit ignored before the late 1960s. Um, Botswana was a a British protectorate. uh, And so it was, I suppose, protected against South Africa, which actually wanted to absorb it at one stage. And it had a narrow escape in in that sense. And the British government 
kept it as a as a uh, as a protectorate, um, but nothing much was done for it. So it was a sort of benign neglect, I suppose, at best. And when they got their independence in 1966, there were very few miles of tarred road and very few things there. But it was a very small population, very very rural population. But they uh, then discovered diamonds, and fortunately, they discovered diamonds after independence, because had they not had not done that, had they discovered diamonds before independence, they may not have then uh, you know things could have been different, because they're always avaricious people who will uh, mention you mention diamonds to yeah. to them. It's a good a good acid test when you meet somebody if you say diamonds and see what their eyes do. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, they discovered diamonds afterwards. And they had a very, Botswana had a very good responsible government. And so the diamond revenues, when they suddenly started producing these diamonds, the diamond revenues were used responsibly uh, to create an infrastructure for the state. And uh, Botswana diamonds are clean. They're clean diamonds, unlike some diamonds. Meaning not blood diamonds, as exactly, they call them. Exactly, yes, as opposed to some diamonds in in sub-Saharan Africa countries, which, the yeah, there are issues with those. But Botswana, Botswana's had a very, very good diamond industry, and the money has gone to the government, really, which is terrific. The government was in partnership with De Beers, but nonetheless, they handled it very, very well indeed. That meant that the society became more prosperous. And what Mara Matsui talks about is the drift to the cities, urbanization. And I suppose she's right when she says that she sees some things about the old society going. But we'd all say that about our societies. I suspect you you say that right here. We would say it in Scotland as well, that actually the, the old intimacies of uh, a society where everybody knew one another and uh, everybody was possibly a cousin of somebody else, that's all been weak in the modern world, inevitably. And we mustn't shed, sit around and weep over that. But we can be conscious of what we've lost. And we can be conscious of how we might try to keep that which we still have. There is a criticism about your books. Somebody asks here about the optimism. There's darker sides of human nature, but your books are very positive. And I have read criticisms that you're just hmm. entirely too cheery, almost utopian, about contemporary Botswana. <laughs> Yes, I and mean, you know dystopian <laughs> is very much in fashion these days. But oh. you you tend to bat this kind of criticism off. Why? I mean, well, I, I I think I mean I I understand that it's a serious criticism, and I wouldn't make light of it. But I think I I am. You're quite right. I mean, people do come up to me uh, in the street really and say you're a, a, a utopian novelist, and uh, and <laughs> really, what can one say uh, to, to 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 that? Um, <laughs> Because I know as well as anybody else that the world is a veil of tears. I know that life is nasty, brutish, and, sh uh, and short. I know that there is great suffering and sadness in the world. Who can't be aware of that? What I'm saying is that um, that exists, that has to be portrayed in literature. Literature would not be doing its job if it didn't describe the harsh face of our, our world. Of course it has to do that. But that is not the sole function of it. And it is not um, a, a question of having to be bleak. You don't have to be bleak and pessimistic about the world. You can be realistic about the world and you can know that. You can know all of that 
is, is happening. You could have experienced it. You'd have to be blind not to know that that's going on, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where there are all sorts of horrors. But that's not the full story. It isn't the full story because there's another story which goes on. And in any society, that other story is going on. And that's a story of people who are leading good lives, constructive lives, with great generosity of spirit and with humor and leading those lives. And those people exist. And I suspect that they're the majority of people, moreover, who are doing that. I think the pathological element is probably a minority. Mm. The danger is that we become obsessed with confrontation, bleakness, and conflict, and we think that's life. It isn't. There's another side to life. Yep. Bleakness and conflict are certainly a big part of the common narrative of when you're talking about Africa. Yes, it, it's there. And there are writers who do that very well, who, who talk about that. And, uh, as I say, you know, you can't ignore it. But I don't think that we all need to rewrite uh, Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I think we can write about the positive things. Because otherwise people could misjudge Africa. They could say, what an absolute basket case, what a disaster. It's not. Well, I wonder, you know, you're very well loved in Botswana, certainly. The government has recognized mm. you. I wonder if people talk to you about how they want to be represented. Well, yes, that's an interesting question. I mean, there are some people in Botswana who would come to me and say, well, you're not telling the full story. You're not talking about unemployment and difficulties of that sort. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say, yes, of course. You know, I wouldn't deny that. Uh, but I think to take that view is to fail to recognize that fiction is a broad church and that there are all sorts of things that you can write about in fiction, and the, in that it's not necessarily the sole function of fiction to talk about problems. Mm. Well, I can it imagine isn't. people I mean, wanting you to be, you know, to stand up for, you You have a real voice here, you could make a difference in politics. Well, or... no, no, I can't, I can't get involved in that. It's not my role. It's really not my role as an outsider uh, to get involved in their politics. That, that I'm very firm about that. Mm. That is not my that's not my function. I'm an outsider, and it's not for me to criticize their society. And they would find, if I did that, I would get into trouble. Alexander McCall Smith, whose popular number one ladies detective agency series is set in Botswana. When we come back, we'll talk with him about the advantages of intuition over reason and the joys of being part of an orchestra full of people who can't play. That's when Writers on a New England Stage continues on NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and we're continuing our conversation with Alexander McCall-Smith, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. The number one ladies detective agency is Smith's delightful series of novels set in Botswana, where Mama Kutsi, Ma Ramotswe, and her husband, Mr. J.L.B. Matakone, and other cronies solve cases of stolen cows, unfaithful spouses, and the occasional fake diamond while sipping endless cups of red bush tea. Alexander McCall Smith joined us just after The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine was published. 
like its 15 predecessors. There are none of the blood-spattered scenes or forensic experts so popular in most books about crime. Instead, we get the elephants in the room, the petty tensions between colleagues and neighbors, all obscured by formal pleasantries and interactions that would not be out of place in a Jane Austen novel. So it's not surprising that Alexander McCall Smith has adapted at least one of Austen's works, Emma, for contemporary audiences. During our conversation at the Music Hall, I asked him if that polite, African way of avoiding confrontation had anything in common with the works of Austen or similar comedies of manners. Here's Alexander McCall Smith. I think Jane Austen, uh, Jane Austen and Mara Matsui are sort of fairly close mm-hmm. uh, to to one another in that the Mara Matsui books are concerned about the the little things of life, and of course Jane Austen herself said that she portrayed life on on a tiny square of ivory. Mm-hmm. That she's a miniaturist. She's talking about these, and if you look at Jane Austen, my goodness me, you don't. I mean, you don't get any political discussion in Jane Austen. And none at all, really. I mean, you'd, you'd think the Napoleonic Wars were, you know, <laughs> weren't going on, that sort of thing. But at the same time, Jane Austen is talking about some universal things, uh, which which are worth worth talking about. And Mara Matsui similarly is concerned with with little little things in everyday life, because for most of us, that's our lives. Mm. That's that for most of us. There are issues about has somebody used our coffee cu- cup in the office? <laughs> that sort of thing. Very big, <laughs> big issues. Um, there was in my, one of my Scotland Street series. There was a, a chapter and after chapter about somebody who who was thought to have stolen a, a blue spurred teacup, and that <laughs> that went on. But those things stand for bigger things. So you can actually say a great deal about humanity and about the major issues in humanity if you're talking about very, very small things. Uh, somebody asked particularly about the lilt of the African language you mm. were talking about speaking in a much more yeah. metaphorical way. How do you do that, get this lilt? You, you listen to the way people speak and you, you, you get that. And, and African English is, as I mentioned, it's very correct because many of the people who are speaking African English, if you go to a contemporary um, Anglophone as opposed to the Francophone sub-Saharan African country, you'll find that uh, English is used as the as the lingua franca and the working language and so on, and language of education. Uh, but it's been taught. They have been taught it because when they started in school, their mother language would have been perhaps an African language, probably. So we get a sort of uh, Isabel Dalhousie independently wealthy, inherited a lot of money, then the residents of 44 Scotland Street, a sort of mixed middle class, and and Mara Matsue and her cohorts. Is that something you're interested in looking in, how people live at different levels? I think so, yes. Uh, I'm interested in in people, whatever the circumstances are, I'm really interested in how how people live and how people think. And uh, it's... It doesn't matter in what bed a person is born, what their circumstances are. Uh, it's what they do with their, their lives. And so you can meet people who haven't had many opportunities in life, who, who you know, wonderful people, who've done a great deal. And then you can met, meet people who've had all sorts of opportunities and they're pretty useless. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but... Uh, <laughs> 
But, but, but mo 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 most people have got an interest in the story to tell you. I mean, you can usually get a story out of somebody if you, if you ask them. Very rarely, I, I make a habit of trying to find out people's stories, and very rarely does somebody not come up with something which is insane. And sometimes you get really peculiar <laughs> stories, you know, wonderful stories. I want to ask you about one of your passions, your bits of your story, the really terrible orchestra, uh, which yes. you, of which uh, you are a co-founder. Yes. What does it sound like, the really terrible? Very bad. <laughs> I mean, we, we are seriously bad. <laughs> Uh, we so what's the inspiration? Why are you well, my wife and I founded the Really Terrible Orchestra about 20 years ago uh, when we felt that there was a call for an orchestra for people who actually really couldn't play uh, their, their instruments. And um, our, our, our daughters had been in the school orchestra and we, we felt that neither Elizabeth, my wife, nor, nor I had been in a school orchestra, and we felt it would be rather nice to have been in a school orchestra. So we'd never had that experience. So rather than say, well, we've never done it, and therefore we could never, never understand what it's like to be in a school orchestra, we decided to form an orchestra for adults who were not very good. <laughs> and... Um, and we did, and we had a wonderful response. We went touring, you know. I know, yes, I'm saying, we, I just... We went touring. You I, know, we, we went to New York. We went to New York, which is, you know, imagine going to New York. Uh, and we played in the New York Town Hall. And we had, it's got 1,400 seats. We filled 1,300. And we had this fantastic concert. Uh, we gave them some sort of sing-along, so we had something from the sound of music. And we also did the... Um, the 1812 uh, um, overture, in overture mm -hmm. which was because we played it so slow in our case, 1807, <laughs> <laughs> and, and we gave them we gave them paper bags to blow up and be the cannons, and there were all these sophisticated New Yorkers. You know how cool they are, and they they all had their paper bags, and they thought this was the best fun, and. Uh, and then at the end, you know normally a New York audience doesn't clap. They're far too cool for that. They just sigh at the end of the... <laughs> but these, they, we had a standing ovation. They stood up and we had a standing ovation. So it was really wonderful. We went to the Netherlands. We were invited by the Dutch government, no less, to go to the Netherlands. And we're planning to go to Sweden. We've been invited to Sweden. And so this is really terrific. Uh, and people love listening to this dreadful orchestra where half the people are trying to reach the end of the music at the same time and not, not succeeding. <laughs> well, come on your show if you like. Yeah, I, think you I, mean, I don't know whether the band... I think you really identified a need. <laughs> I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to my conversation with Alexander McCall Smith, author of The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine. It's the latest in the number one ladies detective agency series. He's also author of dozens of other novels and children's books. The interview was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. Well, it's just so uh, lovely to talk with you, and you know, so many people love the characters in your books and, and wonder, I think, where you'll go with them. I mean, do you have, you said you don't plan, you don't plot. Do you have ends in mind for them? Will you just... 
No, 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 no ends planned for the characters, and nothing like that. I'm not planning any fate for them. <laughs> so I just carry on uh, with, uh, with them, and uh, will continue to do so. I'm, I start new series uh, all the time as well, so I start new sets of characters. Well, I know that you were a very successful law professor, bioethicist, advisor, before you started writing novels. I mean, this is all a second act for you. Do, do you have a... Are we going to see a shift, a third act? Suddenly you'll... Well, I've, I've, no, not really. I mean, I, I hope this act goes on for a while. I've actually... I have developed a new interest. I've become a very keen sailor, <gasps> and that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. So I go sailing, and I have wonderful fantasies. Uh, the sailing. I've bought a... I've got a, a captain's cap. Well, that's um, all you need, really. <laughs> It's, it's tremendous. It's very, it's got some gold braid on the front. And I wear this, and I sail in my boat, and the, this February I did a sail from Antigua down to the French islands, Guadeloupe, the Ile des Saintes, etc. And when I went ashore in uh, Guadeloupe with my, I go with, with, with friends, six or seven of us go, it's the boys, we get permission to go off and we go back to being 18, uh, which is a you know, the age most of us have sort of stuck at. And um, I went ashore on my splendid, I wear white uniform as well. Of course. <laughs> you know, if you're going to have a fantasy, you may as well do the whole thing. <laughs> So I went ashore, and I had these wonderful salutes. They said, bonjour, captain, as I, as I walked through. So it's great fun. So I get a lot of pleasure out of, uh, out of that. The outfit's much better than a bulldozer driver for the most part. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, Alexander McCall-Smith, we have so many people to thank before we thank you properly for this production. The Music Hall executive producer is Patricia Lynch, and the Music Hall producer, Margaret Talcott, NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. NHPR's broadcast producer tonight is Megan Tan. Our digital producer is Sarah Plord. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The Music Hall live sound and recording engineer tonight, Ian Martin. Musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Bob is not with us, but Dreadnought, thank you so much for your playing along tonight. The broadcast producer is Heinemann Publishing, and I'm Virginia Prescott. Please do join me in thanking Alexander McCall-Smith. The thoughtful, prolific, and charming Alexander McCall-Smith from Writers on a New England Stage. And if you want to be schooled by a man who sold tens of millions of books, you can listen to our new 10-Minute Writers Workshop podcast with Alexander McCall-Smith. And while you're there, you can also get a whole lot of writerly wisdom from Patti Smith, Salman Rushdie, and Stacey Schiff, packed into under 10 minutes. You'll find that and more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Music